you know, there are times where like I'll get high and just play around with like synth sounds. And like after like 20 minutes, I'm like, this actually sounds all right. <laughs> it, it's not, but like you can Release convince it. yourself over Release time. It, print but, like, it, world tour. Yeah. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. This is the podcast where a bunch of lifelong friends, lifelong musicians, lifelong critics examine albums from the list of 1001 albums you must hear before you die and give our opinions on whether or not it belongs on the list, whether it was a complete and total waste of your time to listen to. We're going to save you time hour-long podcast that tells you whether or not you should listen to a 40-minute album. It is <laughs> Pay attention. my pleasure to bring to you our list of players and critics for the day. Before we get to that, I just want to make sure, if you have not listened to the album this week, we are listening to The Prodigies, The Fat of the Land from 1997. Make a point. If you haven't listened to it, pause it right now. Go listen to this album so that you can follow along with our conversation as we dive into this quote-unquote heavy air quotes masterpiece of an album and talk about the ins, the outs, the what-have-yous. So why should you care what we have to say? Who are we that you should care what we have to say? Well, like I said, we're a bunch of lifelong musicians. My name is Tom. I've been a bass player for about 25 years. I love singing backup harmony. I love music in general. I've recorded a bunch of studio albums. I've played a bunch of shows. And uh, I feel like I know a little bit about music. Uh, let's throw it on over to Rob. Rob, why should people care what you have to say? Sure. My name's Rob. I've played guitar for going on 25 years. I've played in a bunch of bands, played a million shows, recorded a bunch of albums, written a bunch of songs uh, and listened to records. I have a PhD in listening to records and, and talking crap on them. So I feel like I know a few things about how this art is done. We'll kick it to Adam next. Hey, I'm Adam. I'm not qualified for any of this. So it doesn't, my opinion doesn't matter, but I have been playing music for 25 years, played music for a living for about 10 years, doing 200 shows a year. So had a lot of fun, love music, play keys, sing all kinds of great stuff. Hey, Alan, you're here. How you doing? I'm here. I was hoping you guys could tell me why uh, anyone why you're here. what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I personally don't listen to what you have to say, Alan. <laughs> <laughs> My mic might actually be muted for all I know. That's entirely possible. <laughs> no, I would say uh, similar boat, kind of a longtime musician, longtime music lover. I've been listening to music you know, since I was very young, unwittingly. They're just having music in the house a lot. If Rob has a PhD in music, I probably have a you know bachelor's from... University of the American Samoa or, or, or thereabouts. <laughs> Are you a phoenix? <laughs> oh, okay. oh I'm so sorry. It's hey, rough. they might be a sponsor sometime. I was going to say, we're not getting a sponsor now. Crap. <laughs> yeah, happy to talk about The Prodigy. So let's get into it. We are talking about The Prodigy and their 1997 release, The Fat of the Land. Let's talk about it. Wow. Let's get into a little bit of background of the Prodigy first. Just a super quick tour through the the history of the Prodigy leading up to this. So, this is something that struck me. Uh, the Prodigy is not 
one dude. The Prodigy is several dudes. There is a guy named Liam Howlett. He is uh, basically he does all of the music that you hear on the Prodigy. And that is 99% of the sound that comes out of the speakers is just his sort of synth sampling takes, all that good stuff. And by good stuff, I mean, you know, very mediocre stuff. This reminds me of when I remember when I was a kid, one of the first sort of successful adult jokes I made was I was looking at the Sunday comics and I was looking, I'd, you know, I've been reading them for a while and it's looking at Blondie, I think it was called Blondie, the one where with Dagwood and he makes the sandwiches. Yeah, yeah. And there's two authors on that. I just remember turning to my mom going like, they, they need two people to write this crap? <laughs> yes, 100%. <laughs> Zing! So... I think it should be said that the Prodigy, if you look back to their sort of origins, they are kind of supposed to be a multimedia experience and not necessarily just a band. Because Liam Howlett basically got his start. He was talking to Leroy Thornhill and uh, Maxim and Keith Flint and sort of like, hey, this is what I got going on. They're like, that's pretty cool why don't you make us a tape? And so he made them a tape, uh, like a literal cassette tape, and he wrote Prodigy on it. The reason he wrote Prodigy on it is because he was using a Moog Prodigy at the time. Uh, you know, it's a synthesizer, and, you know, this is a, like all synthesizer music. It's very heavily influenced by synthesizer. But then Keith Flint and this guy, Leroy Thornhill, were like, oh, that's super cool. We're going to make a bunch of dance routines to go along with this music. And that was the genesis of the band. The genesis of the band was a guy who makes a bunch of synth music and two dancers. And they're like, this is it. This is the hit right here. Let's have we, two dancers to run with this. I, I, it's, yeah. it's, it's not that common where if I just imagine if I was transported to this initial band meeting that you just described, where they outlined the premise of the band, that one guy was going to make beats and two other guys were going to make dance routines. It's not often that if I was transported there, I would know immediately that I didn't like the band. <laughs> yes. Obvious to me. I mean, this I is actually how Guar little... started, I think as well. <laughs> <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> yeah, come on. Guar did if Guar is in the same category as this, Guar is the NBA and this is like a peewee basketball right. league. Like. So at when they originally formed, there were actually even more people in the band because it was Maxim on vocals. He was an MC and vocals, Keith Flint on vocals and dancing, Leroy Thornhill on dancing <laughs> on and terrifying words. teenagers in MTV videos. <laughs> yeah. Suburban and moms then, all across the land. <laughs> Some woman called Sharky, who was also a dancer and vocalist. And I think it is important that for at least two of these people, dancer is listed first before <laughs> vocalist. That was their that was their marquee contribution. We're a dancer. They saw what the Muddy Muddy Boston's were doing and they're like, hey, we could expand on this. Now <laughs> we just need a trombone. That, that guy apparently like actually wrote the horn parts for the Muddy Muddy Boston's and did that like sort of lame dancing in the video. But speaking of lame dancing in a video, all right, why is the Prodigies, the Fat of the Land, a famous album? Why is it on the list? Please tell me. I don't know me. why it's on the list, but <laughs> their big hit was the song Firestarter. Yes. I don't know if you guys have watched the music video for the song Firestarter. First of all, the song itself is, I mean, it's just, it's lame. Um, you know, that's another way I can put it. It's lame. Let's listen to about 25 seconds of Firestarter right now and think about this as being the marquee song in this album. 
is Firestarter. Big hit off of The Prodigy's The Fat of the Land. Just so we're clear, it's like a five-minute song, but that 30-second or so snippet covered everything that was right. in the song. You got, you got it you all. To you know. got. <laughs> I feel like that riff that gets like played at you know hockey games to like rile up the crowd, and that's kind of like the song, really. That's their pocket, is hockey games and pumping up crowds. I think that that's I have a uh, I have a note on uh, one of the songs, but I feel like it fits for every other song, which is um, it sounds like a, a fight scene in a Jason Statham movie just started, and yes. this is the music. I have written it. down every Resident Evil movie has a fight scene with at least one of these songs in it. A hundred percent. That's actually you kind of you you codified or you solidified something that that makes it make a lot more sense to me. Just just that one little puzzle. But yeah, if I had been watching people get their ass kicked, this would have been way more palatable. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So maybe this multimedia thing has some legs. <laughs> well, so no, but instead of watching people get their ass kicked, you have Keith Flint. Uh, so Keith Flint, we, I should mention, is the guy with the crazy hair and the, the the nose ring and the crazy guy. Watch the video. Listeners out there, go watch the music video for Firestarter and watch this and then in your head think, this guy came to this project as a dancer. It is not <laughs> dancing. It is just a dude who's just kind of doing like I'm like seizure movements. It's so it kind of reminds me of like flea on some sort of like hardcore stimulant. Yes, know, that was my like but, vibe. Was like, is this flea? Flea would also be playing a sick bass line at the time, and not I'm just doing like something worthwhile. Yeah, <laughs> but he I could just understand. dance if that was the role that was assigned to him. I would imagine. He could. Yeah. Uh, Flea could do it just as well as this guy. And all right. So that video has, it has Leroy Thornhill. It has Maxim, but, and also Liam Howlett, who is like the main guy. And the thing that I find to be hilarious is like Liam Howlett is just like standing there watching all these guys freak out in this like abandoned sewer tube or something like that. It's just, he's just kind of standing there like, oh yeah, it's good dancing. He's like, I've already done the work here. Like the songs are in, you just dance and I'll judge you. I wonder if that was like akin to their live show because maybe he found the secret as a DJ. Because you know how DJs are always trying to dance a little bit, but they can't dance too much, but it's kind of lame. He's like, I'll just get two of them. I'll stand still. I'll just focus on the records and... I'll pay these other guys. So th- this is not a conversation we've had before, but like I would love to be a fly on the wall when they're having the royalty conversation, the conversation <laughs> around like, what's your cut? Leroy Thornhill, the guy who's strictly a dancer and plays live keyboard sometimes for this band. Like, is he making 25% of the royalties on this? I mean, that discussion had to come up at some point. And like, well, I do the think contributions the, are so lopsided. I do think the Devil Horn guy, Keith Flint, did has some co-writing credits, at least on like some of the bigger, bigger hits for his lyrics. I don't know what, you know, song, songwriting. It's for the lyrics. He doesn't, yeah. It's a loose term, I guess, with uh, when it comes to this stuff. So which, which guy rhymed uh, psychosomatic with addict? Big guy, how much yeah. money did he get? That was, that was Maxim, Maxim wasn't it? Yeah, Maxim. Yeah. I, I also thought about Maxim and like 
if you were to like do a like all time chart of like the least amount of contribution to the most amount of money made off of it, he didn't even write a bunch of lines. He wrote like four lines. <laughs> Isn't that what they call in uh, the Bay Area scale? <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. honestly, the fact that Le- like Liam Hallett might just be the nicest guy in the world because I feel like he shared writing credits on a lot of these songs with these other two absolute jokers that could have not been on the track at all and you wouldn't have missed it. The one thing that I will say is that this is very of an era, right? This is 1997. Oh, totally. late 90s, peak MTV, right? MTV is like a dominant force in music consumption. And when you see a dude with the crazy hair and you see Maxim, he's got the weird tattoos and the crazy like contacts in his eyes that make him look all white. That's the thing that I actually remember. I don't remember any of the doop, 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 yeah. doop, 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 doop. I think the haircut is the most interesting thing about the band, in all yeah. seriousness. Yeah. <laughs> and, we, and we should probably describe, in case you don't know who this guy is, He's he's got a reverse mohawk, and then he's dyed each side of his hair different colors and then turned it into, like, devil horns, basically, right? Yeah, and he's just, like, spazzing out. Kind of a Bozo the Clown situation. Right. <laughs> totally. Like I said, maybe secretly he was just going bald and he'd figured out the best way to, to rock a bald hairstyle. That well, apparently he had long hair. I guess they were like punk-ish into that like hardcore punk and were, were veering into that hybrid of faux Rage Against the Machine. I think I've actually seen that they've been – and I didn't realize this at the time that they have caught some blame for being responsible for like the Limp Bizkit era of things or at least sort of being like a catalyst or a fire starter if you will for that uh, (laughs) well played genre yeah they're self-described electronic punk and uh you know they are thought of as like pioneers in uh this genre called big beat which is the chemical brothers and like fat boy slim or like big beat again other artists that i also think suck I don't know. They, they, I feel like every single time that any one of them opens their mouth, I'm like, you were just trying so hard <laughs> to tell me how hard and cool you are. And I don't right. buy a second of it. I don't buy it for a second. So totally. That's a level set on the prodigies, the fat of the land. We've gone into a little bit. I'm going to guess I already know the answer to some of these questions, but like, Rob, what did you think of this album? Yeah, it's this is pretty painful for me. I think, like you said, I, I actually had to kind of check myself. I, so I don't like dance. I'm not a dance music fan or an electronic music fan in general. So I admit I'm uninformed about such things. But even when I tried to level set myself by going and listening to some of the Fatboy Slim tracks or the Crystal Method or Chemical Brothers, or I, I mean, guys, I hate to admit it, but I even ventured into Chesto territory on my Spotify playlist just to try to understand they all had a lot more pop sensibility than this. They all sounded a lot cleaner than this. Like the low finest, which I guess is what the prodigy is going for, really bothers me. This everything is distorted. The drums are distorted. Nothing sounds clean. And then as you alluded to, Tom, this, this kind of I'm trying to freak you out squares, late 90s <laughs> thing. Yeah. Whatever, so, nerd. It's Squ- so ineffective. Yeah, it, it's so... <laughs> Teenage immature. It, it reminds me of um, like it's like AJ from The Sopranos level like angst. You know, it's just I can't I can't imagine ever at no time in my life did I ever think this kind of posturing was was cool. 
this kind of uh, wimpy nihilism, whatever you want to call it, is bad. (laughs) (laughs) Just to clarify. Adam, what did you think about this album? So uh, for those of you who don't remember, we reviewed uh, a couple weeks ago an album by a guy named Devendra Bonhart. And Rob had made a comment that it sounds like he had the ideas for a bunch of songs and then like they just stopped. So he's like, I love you and you're wonderful. And I and it would just stop. Right. And be like, Oh, it's only, you know, a portion of a song. This album is like they had that 10 seconds and then just looped it for five and a half minutes. They had one small, not even a good idea, one small idea. And then it went on for between four to six minutes every track. It was, a, it was a bit of a rough listen for me as well. I really tried. I didn't want to come and just like shit on the album because I, I'm sort of with you, Rob, where like I don't consider myself an expert in this genre or necessarily I'm lacking the full context of kind of what came before this record and where it stands in, in terms of like being a pioneer. The only thing I remember is I watched so much MTV growing up and I remember this just being like all over MTV and I tried so hard to like it. Because I kept thinking, hey, they're just playing this over and over again. I feel like even with bad pop music or bad, you know, sort of top 40 country or, you know, some of those genres that are just kind of a little bit lame, in my opinion, I can usually find some kind of redeeming quality of like, oh, yeah, I can, I get it. Like, I get why large amounts of people like this. But no matter how many times I listen to it or how many times I try to convince myself that like, this isn't so bad, it, it, it just never it just never got me, honestly. But I also feel like it's sort of hard to evaluate because I'm not sure that this type of music at the time was really meant for being in like album format. This kind of music was was like rave music. And, you know, this was, this was straight up like ecstasy Molly type of music that was not meant to be sort of chunked into these like four or five minute, like rock format songs. I think the reason songs like breathe and Firestar actually had some commercial success is because, they figured out a way to like package it so that like it did have a little bit of a rock format, but all in all, I just don't know that this music in my opinion, like lends itself to like an album type of format. Honestly, I just want to throw some, throw something else in there real quick too. So last week we reviewed the uh, beastie boys pulse boutique, right? Which is chock full of samples and really well chosen, well placed engaging samples and and they they use those samples to construct really compelling songs this album is also mostly samples with some synths thrown in there and it just it's an example of how you could go all samples and just do it poorly so it's it's an interesting to have last week be the super success of samples and this week fall so flat on its face in my opinion again not trying to crap on it it just it doesn't seem to work when I went and looked up a lot of these different samples that they had used. Listen, I, I would 100% agree with you on that, Adam. I feel like even if you just look at the list of songs that were sampled for this album, the average song has like four or five samples in it that are just repeated ad nauseum. And for Paul's Boutique, it's like 20 songs per like per song. Like There's 20 samples per song, and they really mix them in a way that they're not beating them to death. Most of the best samples from right. Paul's Boutique, you hit them once and you're done. Mm-hmm. And this was like, hey, you know that sample? How about hearing that for six minutes? Yeah, you want to <laughs> hear that again? Cue it up. And like no album has ever been more buoyed 
by the rise of ecstasy in popular culture than this album has. Like that, well, I feel like that was so much of the reason why this stuff got popular is because that's when like ecstasy was getting popular. And that's when that club scene was really taking off. And I was trying to put myself in, in the context of the time. And like, why would this faux hardness come off as being somewhat authentic? And I think a big part of the reason was that like the raves were like seen as a dangerous thing at the time. And like they were passing laws in the UK to like outlaw raves because they were seen as these like drug fueled orgies and whatnot. (laughs) So like they were like the orgy part. Exactly. Right. (laughs) And I'm sure that that was like, I'm sure that never actually happened. It wasn't actually like an actual drug fueled orgy, but that was sort of like what the almost like the reefer madness panic about them was that like, this is happening in these clubs and it's crazy. Well, I don't know if it was quite akin to reefer madness, but I, I know what you mean. I mean, I think it was popular with young people, probably underage people. And I think a lot of these parties or these raves were happening in not traditional clubs, right? Like yeah, unregulated environments. Unregulated yes. environments, right? So I'm sure. So yeah, and I think that was part of it. And I also read that this was to to kind of Alan's point that this was the packaging that finally reached into the U.S. and sort of sparked some sense of rave culture. Like it was a big thing in the U.K. for a while, and even the Prodigy had had some success in the U.K. before this, but they hadn't been able to export it yet. And so this was their way of exporting it. One thing I'm curious about, though. Based on what Alan said, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of just wondering if if we go on the premise that this isn't really meant to be a album listen of five minute packaged songs, like would someone who really loved the rave scene, would they sort of agree that this is this is a bastardization of what they liked? Or And sub question, do we know anything about the Prodigy's live shows? Were they more like that rave situation or were they more like a band playing through songs? They're playing for hours. It's not like I'm going to get up and I'm going to play 40 minutes. They're going to play the length of time that like you would almost like you would see fish play where they're going to play for three hours. You know, like we're like the people that are playing tonight. Well, they're probably also weaving songs in and out. I mean, there's there's probably much a much different like show kind of aesthetic to that. And I don't, don't know. Don't forget I, the don't forget the dance routines, Alan. Because there's got to be dance routines. <laughs> routines is used it's hard to dance for that many hours. <laughs> oh, thank you. Not if you're on Asia drugs. Shit, drugs, drugs. drugs. <laughs> but I want to go back to the comment that you made before about how um you feel like this was influencing influence Limp Biscuit. I actually found that this I, I find this to be more to blame for like insane clown posse. Like, that's the line that I see. It's not Limp Biscuit. It's Insane Clown Posse of, like, you know, super lame, kind of, like, kind of punky, but, like, weird makeup and affectation. I'm trying to freak out squares type So, of wait, stuff. you mean to tell – I shouldn't have gotten this ICP tattoo here on my – Big revelations here. <laughs> You're a juggalo? Oh, no. I knew it. This you got your time. Fago in a cup over there? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think influence, I don't know if I said influence or more like primed the masses for this weird hybrid of like sort of hip hop, sort of like Rage Against the Machine-ish riffs and edgy punk, you know. This Rage like had been animation. out for a long time at this point. Like Rage. Yeah, yeah. well, that's yeah. one element. That's one element. Not yeah. like, I don't think they sound like Rage, but I mean, sure. they're, they're clearly borrowing from that school of hard riffs mixed with like hip-hop backbeats and trying to like fuse that together i don't think they're in the same category as rage but i i kind of wonder if they primed the u.s audience for 
that kind of schlock. One of the things I read that resonated with me that I hadn't thought about before that connects Rage Against the Machine and Limp Bizkit and The Prodigy and maybe The Matrix and things like that is they were of their era, meaning that there was this kind of end of the world, the apocalyptic feeling as this, as 2000 was coming, right? And so it did lead to this trend of like harder, scarier, more intense stuff. And also the, the like fuck the system vibes and all that with, you know, you mentioned like the crackdown on the raves. Like I, I definitely think there was that like punk rock kind of element to, to their like affect. No, absolutely. I, I think that they're very clearly going for a highly stylized product. And that product, talking about the masses, was extraordinarily well-received. <laughs> extraordinarily well-received. So this album came out June 30th, 1997. And at the time, number one single in the U.S. We, we talk about this. What was the landscape like? Let's talk about the landscape that this album dropped into. The number one single in the U.S. in 1997 was I'll Be Missing You by Puff Daddy and Faith Evans. Mm. Just a completely creatively bankrupt sample. Please, yeah. <laughs> Just Puff Daddy doesn't actually get a writing credit on that, does he? <laughs> I mean, samples being very generous here. <laughs> I, yeah, that, I mean, they just stole that song. That was, I mean, that, and that song is garbage. That song is, and listen, I, and this is a very ungenerous thing to say about Puff Daddy, but like the best thing that ever happened for that man's career was Biggie getting shot, right? He would have been a complete afterthought for everything. All that he ever did was like, Biggie would do something amazing. He'd be like, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, we ain't stopping, yeah. That's Puff Daddy's creative contribution to the zeitgeist. And somehow he's like a billionaire now. Faith Evans. Well, it, it, it is hard to know what's going on, like what the contributions are behind the scenes. But yes, I agree that the outward facing uh, product. Or, <laughs> Listen, even even not, if he was, was doing, strong. even if he was doing a ton of stuff behind the scenes, like getting like, you know, being like the manager and getting it, would be like Quincy Jones on like, you know, a Jackson five album, just being like, no, no, you got to put me in there being like, yeah, all right. Yeah. Like it's, it's not additive in any way, shape or form. He's just trying to be like, he's like a fame whore. <laughs> anyway, Puff Daddy sucks. <laughs> Moving on though. Let's bring it back. We're going to bring it back to last week. Number one song in the UK. When this album was released, take a guess. It's a it's a banger. Spice Girls. It's Hanson's Umbop. Whoa, nice. Yeah. <laughs> been the wicka, wicka, wicka. No way. I think oh, that's amazing. <laughs> I have really full circle. Full circle. Umbop. The doopa doop at umbop. <laughs> All right. So this album was released June 30th, 1997. In less than a month, it was the number one album in the US, number one album in the UK. Number one album. In the two biggest music consumption markets in the world at the time, in less than a month, and in less than six months, this album went double platinum. Double platinum! What's that mean again? That means they sold 2 million copies within the first six months. Again, this is where the royalty conversation really comes into play. Okay, but... (laughs) Now that we're talking about it, I have to say, we've been dissing Keith Flint, the fire starter, but... He definitely is responsible. I mean, that's why they sold 2 million copies. It's that image, right? It's the haircut. 100%. It's the video. It is the image. Yeah. It wouldn't happen without that. Well, and again, like, who who knows to what extent, like, he actually contributed songwriting. You know, that means a lot of things. It could be 
he wrote a few riffs. It could mean he wrote the four lyrics. It could mean, yeah, who knows what, like <laughs> the four <laughs> lyrics. I think it's, he wrote the four lyrics, but that's that neither here nor there, because again, it is a total package. You cannot separate the music from the music video from well, I think it also, there was, I don't know if this was like 97, 98 in, in that kind of realm, but like, I remember at the time when this came on MTV, it seemed like grunge was really like dying a slow death at that point. And it seemed like there was a little bit of a vacuum for that, you know, edgy music. And I, and I wonder if it was, how much of it was very much just like a time and place. How can we sell more clothes to kids? Well, they were up against, so in 1998, it was nominated for Alternative Album of the Year. And it lost to Radiohead's OK Computer, which peaked at 26 on the U.S. charts. At least there's some justice in the world. So, I mean, the fact that, like, it outsold OK Computer by a lot is kind of insane to me. I mean, again, just talk about, like, you want to talk about a soundscape. Like, OK Computer is a beautifully produced album. It's so amazing and organically produced as well. Like, it's just, it's... It's night and day, and I, when I read that, I lost hope. They're both kind of, they're both nihilistic, though. I mean, it fits the theme of that 90s kind of vibe, right? Everything's over. Yeah, well, I was also, you know, at the time, a 16-year-old who was just like, everything sucks, and this is bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it didn't mean that anybody should have paid attention to what I said. In fact, you would have been well served by just disregarding <laughs> everywhere the game. Being a white kid in America <laughs> sucks. <laughs> Yeah, seriously. Yeah. My parents are going to pay for most of my college. What the hell, guys? Come on. (laughs) So, listen, I don't have any recording session info on this. It's like, if this just wasn't recorded in Keith Hallett's house, I don't even understand what they were spending money on. There's no universe where like they need to go into some kind of hit factory to make this happen. Production is needed. Let's get into it. Let's talk about some songs. Let's let's really dissect each mm. one of these soundscape oh, masterpieces yeah. that we have on the table here. We're gonna start Sonic Alchemy on the way. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna start with the first song on the album. The controversial Smack My Bitch. that they found a line that supports domestic violence and heroin at the same time (laughs) well but this song well they did have crossover appeal so i think that's uh well this song speaks to like the the general organizing principle of the band is that you can listen to the song absent the video but like it's really kind of meant to go with this sort of multimedia experience of the video I don't know if you guys have watched the video for Smack My Bitch Up recently. Disorienting. It's not only is it disorienting, but like it's pretty raw. It's like a point of view of 
somebody having a debaucherous night where they're just drinking and doing drugs and going to clubs. And then they like go home with a girl and there's like a pretty intense sex scene where there's like lots of boobs. It's like there is nakedness in abundance towards the end of it. But then at the end, you think it's a misogynistic song about a guy who's hitting his woman. And at the very end, they show you the point of view you've been seeing the entire time is a woman. Mind blown. Commentary. Wow. Commentary. That's amazing. I turned it off when he threw up in the video. I found that to be a little too disturbing for me. Oh, my God. I got to go and watch. Actually, I'm not going to watch this. (laughs) Wasn't that video like banned from MTV? I'm sure. (laughs) When didn't I read banned from MTV, but they had like they would only show it late at night because I remember watching this video on MTV and I think it was like Kurt Loder back in the MTV days gave like a disclaimer at the beginning where they're like, hey, listen, this video is pretty intense, but we think it says like an important message. And so we want you guys to say it type of thing. Which or basically, it's just basically it was just so controversial. They knew people were going to watch it. So they were like, all right, well, we, we can't just like not have this video on our network. Yeah. Pretty insane. Getting banned on MTV was a good thing for most. You know, that was a that was like a badge of not, not even just a badge of honor. That was like a marketing tool, especially for a band like this. Well, apparently they were like touring with the Beastie Boys around that time. And apparently they were touring and the Beastie Boys asked them not to play this because that was around when they were becoming woke, you know, in today's terms. But like right. they were becoming a little bit more kind of sensitive to to that stuff. And, um, you know, of course, I'll give Prodigy credit. They were like, fuck you. We're still playing it. Yeah. <laughs> Alan, the disrespect in women has got to reduce. OK, <laughs> <laughs> no, the Beastie Boys were 100 percent in the wrong on that. Like you're like, oh, this is insensitive to the victims of domestic violence. And it's like, maybe, but like, you can't just tell another band like, hey, don't play that song. That's not cool, man. Meanwhile, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair so I can climb up and get into your underwear. (laughs) (laughs) As we, as the aforementioned, uh, you know, she woke up in the morning and her face was coated line. It's like, don't tell me you're woke all of a sudden. I realized that was like, you know. 12 years before this or whatever but people still. can change guys change change is possible yeah. mm-hmm. can we I'm talk about waiting. how this song is five minutes and 40 seconds long how much how much of that is the weird female oh eastern eastern singing thing that actually gives it some kind of atmosphere and that made me feel like um so i my experience of listening to this song um i literally the first time that i listened to it i you know guys i'm on the east coast for the summer and i'd flown into washington dc to visit my sister i didn't sleep at all the first night that i got in i was sleeping on like a like we gave our kids the bed in the hotel room. So my wife and I were sleeping on like the sofa couch. I could not sleep the entire night. And so it's like five 30 in the morning. And I'm like, I'm just going to go get breakfast for everybody. And I pop my headphones on and I'm listening to this song. It's like the sun's just coming up and I'm like walking through a city that I don't know. It's like nice and hot. 
and like it was it was cool it was like i was like oh this is i'm like i got a pace going i'm walking i'm like you know trying to find my way through this city that was like a very good environment to listen to the song and if i was like sitting in my study with a sniffer brandy like oh let's see how that goes absolutely the wrong environment to listen to it in but like i actually found that to be cool and i feel like the sort of kinetic aspect of this music came through in that sense where i was just like walking through a city i'm like yeah this feels really good i will say i listened to most of the other songs of the album on that same walk and none of them felt nearly as good maybe it's just something about this song but i i thought that was good well it's funny that you mentioned that because i actually felt and with that song in particular and there was a couple other ones yeah like musically speaking i think a few of the things they did well was a few songs had like a feeling of tension and release where it was like i think a lot of this music can kind of especially when you look at it in the context of like hey here's this is meant to be sort of like three hour four hour like rave like but I do think some of these songs had some peaks and valleys, tension and release. And I think that that really long, kind of ludicrously long female vocal in, interlude, whatever you want to call that, it was definitely like comically long. But I do think <laughs> those were, I think, moments of, okay, there's like variety it, it somewhere. You know, they're mode shifting a little bit. And I think that was in short supply. But when it did happen... I at least felt like this feels like music to me. I will say an interlude, an interlude like that, I'm not exactly hurting to get back to the rest of the song. So I kind of appreciate the long interlude. I'm like, let's keep going. I don't know if I can handle it. Don't bring it back. It makes sense to me that it's not sitting down music for sure. And I know that's not how it was designed. So that's that seems like a totally fair point to make. I can't. I couldn't get over the fact, yeah, to your point of wanting the beat to come back in though, the low fidelity distorted drums, it just was never satisfying. Nothing about the main line of the beat was ever t- terribly satisfying. It reminded me, actually, the drum sound reminded me, Tom, of when when you had your first drum kit that that burnout left in my garage. Yeah. Yeah. And it just sound, it sounded like you were banging on trash can lids. And this, <laughs> and this was not considered a good thing at the time. Well, yeah, I will say this. I'm not a fan of like dubstep and like the modern, like hyper electronic music that goes on now. But I, I will say they at least have satisfying beat drops. And like I can see it pointing in that direction of like what you need to do is have like, a, like you said, Alan, tension and release. You need to have like a build up, a build up, a build up. Where's it going to go? And then it drops and you get that like oftentimes it is you got a beat going and then you maybe you don't necessarily go directly to double time before for the build up, but like eventually you get to double time and then you drop to half time. And that's sort of like you're like ba 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 and like that feels cool. This is like I get I can see how other artists would hear this and be like I can improve upon this. I can make this. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. Anybody else have any parting thoughts on uh, on Smack My Bitch Up? But in, in addition to everything being sampled, the only seven or eight words in the song are actually from another song I was seeing on the uh, the samples that were covered. So even the, the couple of lyrics were not there. So it's like... It well, and just... Adam, I think that this touches on what classify what is classified as a sample because that was that was cool keith they clearly did not just take cool that's keith's right they lyrics. just took his 
they took the words. Right, right. They and didn't actually recorded them. Yeah. Yeah. So that's oh, plagiarism. <laughs> that's de- it's definitely not it's not a si- direct sample of cool keep right. i listened yeah. to that song good lord who was that uh who did that um ultra magnetic mcs i listened to that song give the drummer some and that's not it, unless they affected it beyond recognition no because it it has that guy's annoying accent yeah you're right has, <laughs> unless they unless there's like the english accent right gets pushed on their like mode prodigy <laughs> The Cool Keith is already a cool rap name, I think. Not that I know too much about him, but his my one of my favorite rap aliases of all time belongs to him, which is Doctor Octagon. Oh yeah, no, Cool Keith is that's pretty cool. Uh, he is the man. It's like of an era. It's like late '80s, early '90s stuff. But like he is, he's a good rapper. He's one of those guys who we talked about this with the LL Cool J style stuff, where it's like you have lyrical artists who are actually like putting together complex lines with like intro line rhyming and all that stuff. He was one of those guys. He could like, he could actually really rhyme. And the only thing that separates him from MF doom or something like that was really just like production style and choices for like uh, MF doom's complexity in the rhymes were like much greater, but cool. Keith had that ability. And I feel like he would have, you know, he was going in that direction very heavily. And so super cool. They took maybe, I mean, I can't even, I can't even say, I don't know enough about Cool Keith to say if those are like the two like most misogynistic lines that he put out there. Yeah, they took that and they made an entire song out of it. And I, they did not improve on that at all by making it into like a five minute song. But the video, again, it's pretty raw. Like I was watching the video on my phone. So I had, I'd forgotten like what the video was like. And I was like literally like watching the video on my on the phone and my kids were around at some point. It's oh, like, whoa, God. I gotta walk into the room. Okay. <laughs> oh man. All right. There is a lot of nakedness going on in this. All right. Let's move on. Let's talk about I think probably the second biggest track on this. It might even have been the first biggest track because it's certainly a huge single. Is the that song Breathe. Let's let's throw it out there. Let's get to the initial thoughts. I just didn't care. I don't, I don't remember which video was released first, whether if it was Firestarter or Breathe, but to, this was the one I always kind of like associated with a band in high school. And this was like the one song where I really tried hard to like. I do think that this, it resembles a, a song more so than anything else on the album. To me, this actually felt like, if I can say there, it, it's the best song on the album, it actually has sort of like a beginning, a middle and an end. It has some pacing it's somewhat memorable. This is the kind of song where I feel like it's sort of stuck in my head for a while. And it, it still didn't convince me that like they should have sold as many albums as they did. But yeah, I, I think this was actually like one of the, the only like decent songs on the album. Yeah, it was a good tune. It's the one I remember from high school, specifically because of a great experience. Uh, we knew a guy in high school who used to fix cars and do like audio systems and I remember I went over to his house because he had bought this, like, I don't know, 72 Cadillac. And he had put, like, a 1,000-watt 
speaker or, or a thousand watt amp and like a 2000 watt subwoofer. And so we get into the car. This is like the first time he's going to turn the stereo on and he puts this song on. And so it starts out and we're both like looking at each other like, this is badass. Din, 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 din. And the bass kicks in and all of the speakers explode. <laughs> like it just, <laughs> din, 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 din. <laughs> and I remember sitting in the car and if you've ever been around just a subwoofer with no other speakers, it's just like this, like it's just noise. You get so, like the heart palpitations from right. it. It's like, Whoa. He had all the four really expensive speakers and they all blew up except for the sub, which I think Tom actually wound up buying as part of his high school bass rig. I turned that into a bass rig. I remember I used a, uh, a cap from a Sierra Nevada <laughs> bottle to, to make the input jack. Like I like hot glued yep. it and I put like the nuts on either side and the, and the, and the input jack there. And uh, remember we used to play at Mike D's house with that. And oh my uh, God. when we would play live, I would put that like facing <laughs> onto the floor so that like, the cause it, we also had like, I had like another speaker. I had like a 10 inch. Right. Or maybe, but I, we didn't I had, have like, a crossover. Yeah, it was a 15. A I think I may have actually, yeah like torn that speaker once playing it inappropriately, which I can still, I'm in a better position now to like recompense you for that. Uh, by the way, that would be Adam's dad that you would have on that one. Cause that was definitely barred from Adam's was the, dad. Was it the PV? The 15 no, no, no. inch it PV? The, oh. was, I had the PV head, but it was oh, the 15 okay. inch sun speaker with the oh, horn. My God, and yes. uh, that, and then like, it was, a, it was an Orion. Cause it was, I remember it was like an 800 watt, like, something <laughs> obscene like that. Like, why would you ever need an 800 watt speaker system? But I would put it facing down on the floor. You so played with Mike D, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> Just as a complete Mike D aside, I remember this was like a hilarious, we were in college, the University of Delaware, and we're like walking past the deer park. And I was walking past the deer park with Phil and, uh, a band was playing and Phil was just like, that's Mike D on drums. I can tell, I can hear that snare drum. That snare drum is so loud. I can hear it because Mike D's <laughs> snare drum just sound like a shotgun blast every time. And we went up and sure enough, it was like one of the first gigs Mike had ever played with Corduroy. And like, he was playing the drums. We're just like, yeah, that's Mike D. That's... And like, when you walked into the room, it was like, it's like, whoa, oh my God. And he was like shattering sticks. He was just like go through so many sticks in the course of a set. Just, like, he'd be like playing he'd see pieces of sticks sawdust everywhere (laughs) so that's what i thought of breathe (laughs) okay rob what'd you think of breathe yeah it was a slightly better song than i I think i liked it the best or at least it got stuck in my head the most it does feel like the epitome of uh what are you are you trying to scare me like are you like a scary teenager am i supposed to be scared you know you're going through your anarchy phase like is that supposed to be you know (laughs) It's safety pins in your jeans or something. But, you know, what my favorite part was that, that always makes me chuckle, and it reminds me of a Hall & Oates song, is the reading of the psychosomatic addict insane line where he varies up the rhythm on the second read through, which is, which is very <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's got to change it up, right? And uh, Hall & Oates does the same thing, and I can't go for that. No can do. <laughs> no can do it's the first time he goes no can do no can do like oh man you've masterful delivery psychosomatic addict insane raise the pressure 
fact, that is uh, Mega covers that song very frequently. You cover Just Breathe? <laughs> that's why no one comes to our shows <laughs> with a hollow Listen, body you just hate somebody to like run around on stage with you know devil horns and yeah you have a bunch of dancers in the group that's where all our money goes <laughs> so i a couple of things about this song that like i think are, are okay that like what i don't know what like mode or whatever it is but that sort of like that includes the minor third from the root and then the major seven where it's like you know it's like a you're like a half step down from the root but you're also like a minor third up from the root I feel like that was clearly the entire genesis of the song. Like he just played that on the keyboard and he's like, whoa. We need to turn that in a f- over five minutes. Five minute song. <laughs> yeah, it's a cool like, riff though. Like I, cool I do riff. think it's cool, but like, yeah, there's, they got a lot of mileage out of it. Put it that way. They absolutely did. Like I, and I, I think that that it's memorable. It's cool. It's a 90 second idea. That's a five minute song, but like, you know, I feel like that's all of this genre of music. Well, here's the thing, though. Here's what I'll say about that. Like, yes, I, I agree with that. A lot of it is there's a lot of like monotony and a lot of just uh, redundancy or repetitiveness, I guess. But being in a band where we have definitely taken riffs and turned them into long songs in a little bit of a like, I'll say some of it's like pretentious. I can kind of relate to that part of it where I do think you can anchor a song with a good riff if you have enough space and you have enough like mode shifting but i don't think they did that like consistently on the album i do think like on that song like i can live with that as being like the backbone of the song because i think it's a good riff and you know so so i I guess the point being like i'm sort of sympathetic to the idea that you can take a riff and and sort of like not beat it into the ground but you know milk milk it for all it's worth so i i like the the super throbbing bass of like which is probably what blew up those speakers at him oh yeah definitely yeah. like i think that's cool the one thing that i actually found to be the coolest part of the song is the the sword clashing sounds ah uh, yeah that made me think of the wu-tang and i wish yeah. i was listening to the wu-tang instead that was sampled that was so, oh, no. okay so that really? was sampled that was sampled from the mystery of chess boxing oh that's one of the um, best wu-tang songs which is also a sample from right from the some five punk- deadly venoms this is a sample within like a some sample shit. oh Dude, yeah we're through the looking class here people right. <laughs> <laughs> right right why didn't they just go back to the dvd they're like they sampled a song they sampled a sample from another song like you couldn't just go back to what the source was for that sample and get that yourself Wait, now that i'm remembering a little bit lame to me there's another story like this on this record right I, I can't now i realize i didn't write it down but i read about it in some interview where they sampled a band and then the band got mad at them and said you can't sample our song and they're like well actually we know you sampled it and did never paid the first guy and they shut up about it <laughs> 
Yo, just extortion. That's awesome. Go lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I don't think anything about this is awesome. I'm just, like nothing about this is awesome. All right, listen. The other thing is that like, all right, Maxim. There's like two vocalists, and like for lack of a better way to describe them, because you all seen the music video. There's a white guy and a black guy. There's the white guy who was Keith Flint, and there was a black guy who was Maxim. And Maxim is the guy who is doing the sort of a uh, inhale, inhale, you're the dumb. He's unintelligible. And Adam, you pointed out that like you thought yeah. he was saying something different. You had one job. Like that's your only contribution to this. And I can't understand what you're saying. It's not that hard. <laughs> Is that the same thing that they the recorded thing. the <laughs> come play my game? Oh, like that was I had my uh, Adam moment with um, make my withdrawal with that the like come play for all of the like, virtues. I think you know not that I think it's a great song, but it's in my mind it's definitely the best song on the album. And I thought it actually resembled like a real song. That part is just so cringy to me. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, I know you're British. Like, We're approaching music in this song. Like it's getting, it's getting in the realm of music. <laughs> We're doing it, fellas. That's like it almost just had that like sloppy sex pistols kind of just like, Bleh! like, I don't know. I just couldn't. It was, it was a this guy definitely wishes he was Johnny Rotten. There's a strong <laughs> Dude, Johnny I Rotten watched, thing here. I watched all the music videos for this. And like, I was laughing out loud. terrified <laughs> no, the entire time i was laughing out loud i was just like it like how does this ever read as like authentically like cool or like who is the audience for this like this is like you're like a walking hot topic store this is so pathetic right. and rob you mentioned like <laughs> oh i have clothespins in my on my leather jacket in the music video for Breathe, the guy Keith Flint has a clothespin as uh, the nose ring. Of course. It's so of course pathetic. He does. You're so, so punk, pathetic. bro. You're so punk, dude. Can we mention, too, I read that uh, he went and worked on a, when he was younger, he went and worked on a kibbutz in Israel. So punk rock, bro. <laughs> Sorry, rest in power. Oh rest in Lord. power, Keith. Rest Sorry. in power. Yeah, because we should, we should mention that he hung himself in 2019. Which oh is super man, shitty. that is terrible. And like, oh, listen, Keith Flint, your music sucks. Nobody <laughs> deserves that. I'm really sad that he got to that point. I still am about to make fun of him for something, <laughs> which is that like I saw. So, you know, you're familiar with the, the look that he had with the devil horn spiked up hairstyle. If you go to their Wikipedia page, it's a picture of them performing in 2015, and he has that same hairstyle. Oh, yeah. He's still rocking the devil if horn it, hairstyle. If it works, why why mess with it? Can you imagine going to a, the Prodigy show and not seeing that hairstyle? You'd be like, I want my money back right now. I demand recompense. <laughs> yeah, you don't bite the hand that feeds you. Come on, man. <laughs> I'd be doing some kind of like uh, you know Brian Cranston Walter White thing where I have like a prosthetic that I put on every time because <laughs> I don't have to walk around like that, you know. Yeah, it was. I felt a little bad for him when I saw that, but uh, yeah, it's like listen, it's terrible that he uh, that he killed himself. It doesn't mean their music doesn't suck. Speaking of songs that suck, and also speaking of a callback to last week, let's go on to funky shit. Oh my god, that's the funky shit. (laughs) 
fact that they were like, that would be a cool sample. Let's grab from the Beastie Boys. I think that's, uh, is that? Uh, Root Down. And it was Ad Rock saying, oh my God, that's the funky shit. That's Mike D saying, oh my God, that's the funky shit. So yeah, they, they grabbed the sample from Root Down and they turned it into a song. And like, that would have been cool to throw in one time in a song and not have it be the entire song. This is the one that I was like, oh, it's like Mortal Kombat. Not the new Mortal Kombat, even. It's like the Mortal Kombat movie from, like, 1997. Mortal Kombat! It's like that kind of music. This shit is terrible. Terrible. You could just take Smack My Bitch Up and put it on top of funky shit, and I'm pretty sure they would be indistinguishable from each other. (laughs) Oh, It's the same tempo. That would be a fun experiment. Let's just put all the songs together. Oh, my God. That's awesome. I dare you to listen to that. We should... (laughs) How much, I mean, how much more offensive could it be? <laughs> like, there's so, there's so few lyrics. I'm sure the lyrics wouldn't hit on each other because there's so few of them. So I, I was not even aware that this was a thing, but apparently there was a television show called SWAT in the 70s. That was like, they were, it was like trying to coast off of the success of Charlie's Angels. And that's where like that horn sample comes from is like, the dun, 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 dun. yeah, right. yeah. Which is the best part, again. Yeah, that's the best part of the song. Yeah. yeah. I can't get over this. It's the same thing we said with Kala. And it's also, you know, we very rarely said this about Paul's Boutique, but like, when the one sample is the absolute best part of the song and I feel like everything else just takes away from it, that to me describes a terrible song or like not even really a song. I think the most terrible read on some of this stuff is that they could have been, they were trying to achieve some kind of cinematic theme song stuff and maybe that's why they pulled from some of that that material, that Lil Schifrin type material or I don't know if he's the actual composer on that, but right. I, I almost could convince myself that it was in that vein of, of cinematic score music that made me feel cool walking around, but this this is just so repetitive and bad. Is this one that had sort of like a Knight Rider kind of feel, like almost like a I don't know. Yes. Yeah. 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 So this song is like, it's actually more in line with their previous albums. They were much more sort of synth heavy and they were less like this kind of like punk extravaganza. Ooh, are you scared yet? Type of type of vibe. And so I don't think it works on this song. I don't think it worked on the previous stuff, but like I can see the, the more of a through line from their previous stuff to this. Yeah, it was bad. It, it it was not funky, but it was very much. It shit. was not. It was That's not a really funky. good point. Yeah, stop telling me something. It's telling me what to feel. Song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're gonna say you're funk, like, you, you better deliver. Like you better be like P funk, being like, right. like we're just gonna say funk yeah. repeatedly through the song, and we are gonna hit you over the head with funk. There was no funk at all. Usually talking song. about how they want to bring funk to them. Even exactly. they're not even they're not claiming to be funky. <laughs> When they say we want the funk, at least there is a delivery at that at some point. They're like, we want the funk. You know what? If you're not going to bring it to us, we're going to do it ourselves. You know? Yeah, they're ordering yeah, it. I'm going to make my funk the P-funk. Right. They definitely had the shit part of that equation like dialed in, though. <laughs> I felt like this song was one of, one of the examples of like, and Tom, we, we may have been talking about this the other night, actually, where like, you know, there are times where like, I'll get high and just play around with synth sounds. And like, after like 20 minutes, I'm like, 
this actually sounds all right. <laughs> it, it's not, but like you can Release convince it. yourself over Release time. It, print like, it, world tour. Yeah. yeah. In your mind, like if you if you mess with something long enough, like you can make it sound all right. And that's like the first thing that ran through my mind when I listened to that song was just like, I, I don't want to diminish this like genre. There may be people that think this is a great song, people who are like in the know, but it just felt to me like, you just got high and pushed a couple buttons. And really that's, that's all you did. You know, this goes back to a comment that Phil had made on the Eric Clapton 461 Ocean Boulevard review, which is unearned confidence. And like, you're absolutely right. That it's just like completely unearned confidence of like, Hey man, I got the sequence. It goes, I can just do that for like five minutes. And every once in a while I'll be like, well maybe at the time that what i don't know like maybe that was cool like i i don't know unearned i like that that's a good one (laughs) it's a real problem (laughs) it is a real problem all right let's move on to like just which i think is the epitome of everything we've been talking about this is for me the low light of the album unearned confidence look how hard i am and an idea that should not have made it past conception. Serial Thriller. I hate most of this song, but I actually one comment I had on the positive side was that I like that you can hear the seam, so to speak, of the guitar sample. That makes it slightly better for me. The guitar sample from that skunk Anansi song. Is that what it is? Selling Jesus. Yeah. Which apparently came, by the way, listen to that song. It's fucking terrible. Yeah, it's very poorly produced. It sounds like a bunch of high school kids. And the video looks the same. It sounds like a bunch of high school kids. I can't tell if the singer is a man or a woman, and it doesn't matter because either way they suck. (laughs) Whatever they're going for is terrible. It's so terrible. My note on this is this is what 14-year-olds think is hard. Like that's that's my take on this song. It's like burgeoning school shooter stuff. We're like sitting in the back of the of the class and be like, oh "My God, serial thriller, serious killer." Whoa! Oh man, my mom's Watch gonna out. hate this. Yeah. Turn it up real loud. Take that, <laughs> mom, for funding my college. <laughs> well, speaking of things that speaking of things that moms hate, this like it begins and ends with this like phone off the hook, terrible Oof. feedback sound. Yeah. That that makes up like a good minute of the song, probably. Yeah, that goes on pretty pretty long. It's from a it's an old sci fi movie. Some like aliens landed or something, and it was the sound of the spaceship. And they're like, let's take that, but let's put it through all kinds of weird effects, so it's even worse than the original. Listen, I I, I keep going back to the fact that they have two vocalists, two people whose entire job it is is to write and perform lyrics. And they're so bad to say like that they're so bad is like, it's not even giving credit to how terrible it is. I don't think that I could write something this bad damage destructor crowd disruptor. You corrupter every timer. Yeah. (laughs) Damage destructor crowd destructor mainliner every timer. 
Taste me, taste me, succumb to me. Oh, I forgot so about bad. that part. That part's it's so, bad. so bad. That's pretty cringy. Yeah, the taste me part was my cringe moment. Oof. And again, there was like a whole generation of people that took this seriously. I don't understand. And like, are these just the kind of people that listen to dubstep now? Because I feel like dubstep is kid stuff. Like, again, I, I found myself being like, are we just like super out of touch old men at this point? And the answer to that is most likely yes. But everything that I love about music points in the exact opposite direction of this. Right. And I don't understand how this is huge. The answer to your question is definitely yes. Like we like, well, I don't, I don't want to say we're like out of touch, but I mean, if you think about like the exercise we're doing here, which is like sort of doing a critical analysis of an album that really on its face, aside from any like context of it being like a bestseller and all that, like really has no business being sort of like parsed in this way. So, so. Or listened to by anyone. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Listen, but I, I just give us credit that we can actually parse something that is this bereft of creative influence. For, so, you know. Yeah, for sure. You know, I think back to some of the music that, you know, I had, I had my like punk rock phase and if I, if I go back and listen to it now, it's like, you're just a bunch of like white kids with mohawks from Orange County who have problems with something. You probably don't know what it is. You're sort of a little bit angry and yeah, it's definitely lame and cheesy, but I mean, there's definitely a you know, like marketing towards that younger group of people. I mean, that's, that's sort of like well-worn, you know, territory. Yeah. Kids are freaking idiots though. <laughs> Basically just saying it's like, damn whippersnappers. I can sell them anything. So like, this one's called me dangerous. fans are a bunch of stupid pigs. <laughs> <laughs> Slag off. <It> was like, <laughs> Cool. Okay. Does anybody else have anything to say about (laughs) serial thriller? Um, I'm square. I did not Uh, succumb. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go on to what I think. I think this was the biggest song on the album. Uh, Again, listen. I listen. I apologize to all of you guys on this podcast. I apologize to everybody listening to this podcast. I had a real hard time focusing on doing the basic research for this because I just really hated this album so much. I couldn't stand it so much. That's all right. We're all mailing this in this week. I don't think I need to have this much knowledge about the prodigy in the old noggin. It's, it's already gummed up with enough, you know, useless anxieties and everything. I don't need to hear about any more of this crap, but so I'm just going to go ahead and assume that this was the big hit from them because this is the one that I knew was a big hit. From back in the day, Firestarter. Let's listen to just a little bit of Firestarter and, you know, thinking of it in the context of this is like a pretty freaking lame British dude trying to tell you how dangerous he is. I'm a Firestarter, twisted Firestarter. Firestarter, twisted firestarter. On the bits you hated, built with facts you hated. 
have. I have a question. Trouble starter, pumpkin instigator. I'm game? the fear addicted, <laughs> danger illustrated. <laughs> yes, that's right, Rob. I'm cutting you off every time you try to talk with another weak ass line from here. <laughs> I think it speaks for itself. I'm the fire starter, twisted <laughs> fire starter. <laughs> I think if you have to tell somebody how dangerous you are, you're probably not that. Right. Trust me, I'm really dangerous. <laughs> Do we know if these kids grow up affluent at all? That's just a guess. But this feels this feels like not poor kids music. You know, it's funny. It does feel like not poor kids music. And they grew up in Braintree, Essex, which is like a town in England. I don't know if it's super crappy or not, but like I, I guess I just feel like British never reads ghetto to me, no matter oh. how ghetto it could possibly be. But no, like, there's plenty no, of ghetto listen, British. Yeah. I'm the, there's plenty of like chads and whatnot. But like, even <laughs> oh, even the guys that are like in the oh yes, I'm sorry, I'm using some That's totally like, bollocks insensitive language. <laughs> but like, even the guys that are like, I, I don't know. I feel like all right, when I when I grew we grew I grew Wilmington, Delaware. Wilmington, Delaware is not a safe city. It's a total shithole. All right. When I moved out to I'm San Francisco, Wilmington. I'm not going to. I know. Listen, you I'm not going to settle for this. You live in about as suburban Wilmington as is humanly possible. You got as far away from the city center as is humanly possible. Oh, as opposed Either to way. say Richardson Park, <laughs> the mean streets. Uh, of dude, Richardson. <laughs> Richardson Park is not great. Dude, Deerhead hot dogs did, was good. Hot dogs. One of your neighbors like uh, kill his family or something like that at some point. <laughs> Either way, I just remember when I moved to San Francisco (laughs) and I was like walking through the streets of like what was like I was in the Western edition and people were like, oh, this is like this is a rough neighborhood. And I remember like walking through this neighborhood and being like, this is like the most affluent neighborhood (laughs) in Wilmington. This is not rough at all in any way, shape or form. And I feel that same way about England. The parts of England are like, oh, that's pretty rough. I feel like I'd walk around there and be like, you guys are like so not rough and you think that you're totally rough. But I think. I read that Keith Flint's dad was an architect. I'm going to assume that means they had a little bit of cash. So yeah, he's I not feel a day laborer. I, I validated my own my own story. Uh, one one anecdote I read in, in an article that I think that kind of sums up a lot of what we've been talking about. I think it was Liam Howlett said he was talking about people were asking him like re, trying to read into the music like oh what does it mean is it political is that the kind of punk and he's and he said something along the lines of we like the dumb side of music only. He was like, we like, I like Chuck D, but not when he like talks about real shit. Like, I just like the dumb stuff. That's what we like. Yeah. When he says fight the power, I, I'm with you on the fight part, but the power, no, no, that's not cool. Uh, we can fight about which soccer team is best or which football team is best. I also feel like, you know, just in terms of like, are you wealthy or not? If you need thousands of dollars worth of synth equipment to make your first album, you're probably doing pretty all right. It's not like you bought a guitar from a pawn shop for $89 and an amp for 25 bucks from some dude on the street. And you're like, that's my band. So yeah, that probably reads as like pretty well off. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel too. I'm the bitch you hated. <laughs> Filth infatuated. Yeah. <laughs> so Here, I'm, terrible. I'm, I'm going to show you. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get my, my notes. Uh, it's not going to show up on the computer here, but my, my note for track nine, Firestarter, Bullet, oh man, I want to punch him in the face. The vocals are terrible. <laughs> bullet number two, I'm so over this. <laughs> and then no, <laughs> and yet there's still then, six and a half minutes. <laughs> and then no more bullet points. Come play 
my game. All this so, stuff is re- just so real quick. Terrible. So I want to go back to like the, the whole the whole sample thing. Is there ever a point where you get your hands on a sample and you look at it and you say, "Now I can't use that," just because it's not a song or because we don't have to go into track eight? But I was just reading on the list of samples that were used there. There was a sample from a CD called Sampletronics Distorted Reality Volume One, and that it was called Crying Out Dot Wave, as in it was just a wave file that they like got from like a bargain bin CD of like samples or just sound effects. Like that you could get I like the, the Halloween sound effect and be like, oh, you know, Witch Screaming Three. All right, let me use that in there and chop that up. Do you lose cred? <laughs> I respect that more than I do. And like, listen, they took from a breeder song, SOS, that's like the main like guitar. I respect it more if it's something that's like super obscure. Right. I don't know if you guys, though, so, like full disclosure, I had listened to this album maybe like two months ago because I saw that it was on the list of like a thousand one albums you had here before you die. And I was like, this would be a good way to punish myself because I hate myself. And so, you know, I, I make my life pleasurable. <laughs> And it led me down the rabbit hole. I was listening to that Aphex Twin song, Come to Daddy. You guys, I am sure remember that video with like the little kids with a weird like bearded face that are like running around some. It's his face, isn't it? Isn't that his face? It's like, I don't think it's his face because like his face, he's like a skinny, pasty guy, but like. This just seemed like a lamer version of that song, Come to Daddy, where it's like that again, it's like a video package. So like you you have to experience it, the song and the video together. But like that song's genuinely creepy. And that video is like maybe one of the best videos that was ever made is uber creepy. You guys should totally check that out. But it, it has this like part where he's just sort of like going, come to daddy, come to daddy. And it's like really creepy. But then you actually see the guy and in like a well-lit room and you're just like, oh, okay. Yeah, you're the guy who's like trying to freak me out. And I feel like it's the same thing with these guys. Well, like if you're in nice a sewer, try. Party, if right. you're in a sewer and you're running around and being like, look how crazy I am, you're like, oh, that looks kind of cool. But if you see this guy at, you know, at a Safeway trying to buy avocados or something, and you're just going to be like, what the hell is wrong with you, dude? You're like the lamest person I've ever seen in my entire life. And I feel like that just like describes the entirety of this genre is like, it works when there's a strobe light going on and there's smoke and there's like, and I want a bunch of drugs at that point. I'm like, Whoa, this is crazy. But if I'm just like looking at you in an office building and you're like working at the cubicle next to me, I'm like, what the hell is wrong with you, man? Like, why are you like this? Safeway. <laughs> they have good avocados. I will say. Quality produce. Very ripe. Cool. Yeah. Can we stop listening to this now? <laughs> good Lord, yes. Can we be done? And listen, I I've been held in some serious suspense. I oh. want to know. I want to know. Does this album make the list? It is decision time, everybody. Can we get? An up or down vote. Adam, I want to hear from you first. Does this album make the list? Despite the fact that Q Magazine readers voted Fat of the Land the ninth greatest album of all time. <clears throat> People apparently who read Q Magazine can read. I'm surprised by this. Because <laughs> Q Magazine like highlights or something right. like that. 
this cue from Deep Space Nine? Like, what are we, what are we doing here? It might be, please, it, Alan, please. Yeah, seriously, come on. It Come might on. be a, a dedicated uh, electronic dance music publication. Uh, I'm sorry, this is not going to make it onto the the list. I, I feel like I've I've listened to it four or five times, and I'll never get that four or five hours back of my life <laughs> <laughs> because it's an hour long. It is. It's uh, definitely CD era length. Yes, yes, it's not vinyl era length. They're not worried about what side one and side two. They're right. just like, how about we just continually fuck your ears the entire time? <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Alan, send it over to you. Look, I know, you know, we spent like an hour and a half kind of shitting on this record, rightfully <laughs> so. There's a part of me that thinks yes, only because I will confess, like, I don't know this genre. And people who do think that this belongs on there. Like, like this is considered like a forerunner for a lot of similar music that came after. However, do I think someone needs to listen to this before they die? I do not. So if if that's the criteria, then it's just a it's just a no. Yeah, it's a big fat no for me. It just feels uber immature and not edgy at all. And I've never understood that. I've never thought that was cool, even when I was an angsty preteen or whatever, whoever they're aiming at here. And so, yeah, you don't need to listen to this. You shouldn't listen to this unless you're in some kind of Gitmo rendition situation, maybe. But no. This album sucks. Um, I, I really, I hated every second of listening to this album. I really, I cannot describe to you how annoyed I was at the fact that I had to listen to this album so many times. And this comes down to one of those everyone is stupid except for me type of things. Like, I have to put it on the list because I feel like if you were to look at the music that I like, and the ripple effect of the music that I like that had on like where music is now, I feel like an album like this had a much greater impact than like the, than like Siamese dream, which I loved or like, okay, computer, which I loved like, okay. I wish that more stuff nowadays sounded like, okay, computer. That was like super popular, but it doesn't, it sounds like this. It sounds like this freaking garbage. And so I have to put it on the list because like, 10 15 years from now like the stuff that i love is going to be an afterthought to the garbage that took this concept and made it i guess better i don't necessarily think better but like i could say that like if you were a person who was into this it refined that concept more but yeah it's on the list begrudgingly i will never listen to it again and i will never listen to the type of music that it spawned willingly ever but uh, I have to say that it, like, <laughs> in terms of the out, in terms of like the uh, the influence that it had, I feel like it actually had a pretty big influence. This album was huge. It went double platinum in six months, and Beastie Boys' Paul's Boutique, Paul's Boutique went platinum in ten years. So, like, I mean, I can't say anything besides that. It's a Man. shame, but yeah, it belongs. All right. But that's, you know, the verdict. I will take the lone begrudging yes vote, and we will say, the prodigy, y'all are off the list. I am sorry. Sorry, not sorry. Your album sucked. You're not on the list. Freeing up space on that list for all these other great, notable snubs. Maximum or Maxim Reality is going to be very upset when he hears this. By the way, there's a Maxim Realty 
outside of Philadelphia, and that's all I can think of when I saw his name. I was like, oh, shit, that dude. Wait, reality? Real, dude, uh, that would be a pretty awesome move if that was actually him. And right. he just moved outside of Philly and started a real and estate a real company. Estate. <laughs> you have to diversify, man. You right. got to have multiple income streams. Totally. Smart dude. You know, you like walk into the house and like you open the door and it's like, don't, don't, don't. And he's like, hey, you with me. <laughs> Check out the sewer. Check the bathroom. <laughs> Look at that splashback. It's awesome. I did read like a little piece of an interview with him. I think it was for Keith Flint's you know, recent death. It's like a retrospective. <laughs> and, uh, and I got this little undercurrent. I'm not sure if I was inventing it or not, where he was just like, he thought of, he, he didn't see his life going this way where he was just like, I, I kind of thought of myself as a real MC who was going to write like socially conscious lyrics and not just insert random uh, sporadic outbursts. Did he have like an allotment of like, we can only have lyrics over like 14% of this song. So like, you really have to trim down that. I do wonder if Liam Hallett was pulling those strings behind. Cause it, one thing we didn't maybe mention, sorry, I know we're done with this is that rave culture doesn't, doesn't tolerate a front man, right? Like I think in their, in people's minds when they're dancing at a club, doesn't that just get in the way of their vibe? When lyrics too, like no one's really paying attention. You know, you don't need some, you know, I don't, I don't think they're there for like deep reflective, you know, music. No, what it comes down to is like every dancer in the audience is trying to be the center of attention. That's why those guys have the glow sticks and they're all like, look at how great I'm dancing right now. Like everybody is trying to be the center of attention at a rave show. It is not focused on the guy on stage. It's focused on the dude dancing next to you. Is he dancing better than you are? I say this having never gone to a rave. <laughs> but with all the confidence confidence of saying these guys are goddamn douchebags <laughs> so anyway let's talk about what are we going to examine next week oh yeah we got to figure it out we're, we're trying to refine this list we're trying to get it down to just the, the essence of it so i have the albinator 5000 i brought it with me all the way to the east coast i've been hauling i had to check it it was it was like in the odd sized baggage claim it was it was a pain so i have it out back i've been cranking it all day it's ready to go next week we will be examining drum roll please ah fiona apple's title Interestingly, she also samples a bunch of Wu Tang on that. Album. <laughs> Dude, I was in love with Fiona Apple. This is this oh is a goodness. this is a throwback, man. This is great. What particularly are you throwing back there, Adam? <laughs> <laughs> Some solid music. Some solid gold tracks. This was one of those albums that, as a young musician, made me think that it was possible that I could become famous because she was like sixteen when she wrote a bunch of these songs, and she's very very young when this came out. So, like, as a young listener, I was like, oh, that's just going to be me. Clearly, what I'm writing is just, you know, on the same level. And I am, you know, not only am I uh, you know, as musically talented, but I'm also clearly as physically attractive and working as being Apple. So I'm just going to be famous. Yeah. Well, you did definitely have the gauntish uh, look that she pioneered. Yeah. So. She also probably never eats breakfast. You know, it's a, uh, it's, it's a look you got going on. <laughs> that was the like heroin chic it was like peak heroin chic phase so yeah fiona apple's title everybody listen to that album for next week again you cannot appreciate this if you have not listened to the album 
before we uh, before the podcast. We've referenced a bunch of songs. We've referenced a bunch of stuff on this podcast. We have a playlist that we put together of all the stuff that we referenced. It's in the notes. Check it out. Go listen to that stuff. It will give you a greater appreciation of this garbage album that we listened to this week. <laughs> Oftentimes, the samples and the other stuff that we talk about is more interesting Are than, better the, uh, than the, yeah. the album. Yeah. And even if it's not more interesting, it definitely augments the experience. Do you think that we got it right? Do you think that we got it wrong? Are you a person who grew up in, I don't know, Surrey and was like going to the clubs and it's Green just tree. all about, yeah, exactly. You're, you're like super into the British club scene hmm. and you want to tell us why we're wrong. I would love to hear why we're wrong. You are our target audience, by the way, if you live in any of these areas. I'm sure the MBA-fueled holes in your brain won't allow you to craft an email, but (laughs) give it a shot anyway. You know, we can we can decipher it. We're we're tea leaf readers. Uh, One thousand and one album complaints at Gmail. Write us a message, and uh, you know, pack the vitriol in there for everything you think we did wrong. Pack the praise in there for everything you think we did right. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Again, we're critics. We can take criticism. We want to hear it. We're trying to get better. We're hoping that you're being along for that journey. Uh, we want to uh, make this as enjoyable for our listeners as possible. And until next time, I have been Tom. Is it me? Oh, <laughs> I, just uh, I don't even know. We talked about this, guys. I, it's Rob. Did we? Oh, fuck. Wait, what did we talk Rob? about? Did I miss that part? We talked about it like three weeks ago. Come on. Uh, well, no, no. We said it was going to be alphabetical, but we've, we've totally fucked it up all episode. That's the problem. <laughs> So, yeah, but I, I can never. I'm alphabetically last. By first name or last name. <laughs> alphabetical by first name. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Let's go to so Alan. Anyway, <laughs> let's give this one another. And seriously, wait, do wait. not cut this out and post. I want to hear this. I wanna, <laughs> you got to hear the shambolic, like ass fuckery that is our approach to begin this podcast. Oh, if anyone's still listening at this point, then you know they're in it. Adam, Adam has the cheat sheet. <laughs> the cheat sheet. He goes Rob, Tom, Alan, Adam. Okay, so apparently, Alan, you were supposed to hop on that. So anyway, I've been Tom. Who's the next idiot here? Me, Alan. (laughs) (laughs) Really, people pay attention to what we say. We really have a lot to offer. (laughs) I'm Adam. And I'm Rob. Boosh.